Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Welcome to the Supporting Sobriety Podcast, dedicated to the unsung heroes behind those struggling with addiction, their friends and family like you. We'll share insights, stories, and resources to help you support your loved ones and care for yourself on the recovery journey. I met my dealer in a Santa Monica motel room. At that point, I had never used a needle to inject myself with drugs. On this particular day, I wanted to experiment, and my disease had a tight grip on my life. What I recall was my dealer giving me a specific amount of drugs referred to in needle form as CCs or the amount you inject yourself with. He ended up giving me way too much and I was so high that I walked backward all the way home because I was so paranoid about what was behind me, I couldn't even see what was in front of me. That was the first day my mother who had raised me all by herself realized that I had a problem. My name's Ryan Hedrick, and I'm a professional broadcaster in Indianapolis, and I have long-term recovery from the disease of addiction, and now it's my mission to help you support your loved ones as they struggle with their addiction. I have a co-worker that I wanted to hang out with and go drinking with, so we went on a Saturday afternoon. It was around 2 p.m., and you know you have to find that particular bar, that one bar that will serve you alcohol at 2 p.m. and not give you too much of a look, and we were able to find it, an old bar, a traditional bar, not necessarily a dive bar, but even they started giving me funny looks when I started ordering well, tequila on a Saturday afternoon at 2 p.m. It wasn't one shot. It turned into six or seven on top of the three craft beers we were drinking in the meantime. I did drive home. I did go home and go to sleep and pass out, and I woke up, and again, my hands are shaking. I'm vomiting and at that time. It was, yes, you need to go back into rehabilitation. My name is Matt Bear. I'm an alcoholic in recovery. I work in Indianapolis on the radio, and I'm here to help you get your alcoholic or addict back on the Supporting Sobriety Podcast. It's important to be aware of the physical, legal, and financial signs when dealing with a loved one who is struggling with drugs and alcohol. Number one, the physical toll of drug and alcohol abuse can be difficult to spot, but over time, signs may become more obvious as the disease progresses. Number two, legal issues such as pending lawsuits or citations for driving under the influence are also a strong indicator of substance abuse. Number three, financial problems. They can be a significant sign that your loved one has a problem. Be aware of these signs and you could help recognize the problem and take a step towards recovery. Now let's dig in. The physical indicators will tell you that you have an alcoholic or an addict in the family. They will so often, and there are so many of them. Uh, like the handshaking. That was, as a recovering alcoholic, the handshaking was such a giveaway that I tried to hide so much. I didn't want anybody to see it because what do people associate with handshaking? An alcoholic, especially right. somebody who drank like me. It, it wasn't hard to tell. I mean, and it, it usually at the height of my alcoholism, I would say I could go three to four hours without drinking before my hands would start shaking unless I just got completely drunk. So imagine that trying to get through the day. You know you're trying to get through the day, but yet you have to take pulls off the bottle that's killing you 
to be able to keep your hands from shaking and to just uh, look normal a little bit. Take me back to the the first time you noticed that your hands were shaking. That must have been weird. It was, I mean, it was something gradual that I noticed uh, with my hands shaking. And at first I just thought, no, you're not an alcoholic. That's not because you're, you're drinking too much. But, but I remember... Um, when I would go to any kind of lunch with anybody, and I loved my lunches because, you know, you could have a drink with them. And I couldn't pick up a water glass without going, do, 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 and just shaking in my hand. I mean, it was massive. And eventually, you can't hold a fork, and then you can't hold a knife or, or, or even write. And there are it just gets so vicious if you don't get that big pull. And I'm not talking about a little pull. I'm not talking about half a shot here. I'm talking about a man's pull off that vodka bottle. Then your hands are going to keep shaking, and so they're going to continue to. How long between the first time you realized your hands were shaking and the, the time that you came to the realization, man, I... They're shaking uncontrollably now, and I don't know what I'm going to do. I would say it would be about five or six years. Um, oh, so it's a long time. Okay. I mean, this is one that starts early on you when you're thinking you're just a big partier and just a big binger every now and then, and then eventually just gets worse and worse and worse, like all the other symptoms of alcoholism, all the other physical symptoms. And I hate to say it, but it never completely goes away, at least for me. Hmm. It might be for other people. It might entirely go away. But for me, if I get nervous, um, I, I as, as we work at a radio station, I went to a station event and I was nervous and I remember my hands would not stop shaking. And this was not a problem. When I was a kid or before the height of my alcoholism. Yeah. But in ongoing recovery, it's different because isn't it a different kind of shaking? It goes from uncontrollable and I can't identify the source to now I'm shaking because I'm anxiety ridden or something like that, right? It's such a great point because while it does happen, it used to be when it would start, it just wouldn't stop. But now if my nerves calm, um, it's able to dial itself back a little bit. It sounds like you're just nervous. And I'm like, no, when my hand starts shaking, this is something that very much reminds me of my hand shaking and my alcoholism. It's not a nervous shake. Yeah, is it a trigger? Can it be a trigger? Because as you go on, throughout recovery you know we're taught to identify our emotional and physical triggers can that handshaking serve as you know a flashback to your some of the worst days of your life well i mean not necessarily it will remind me little things remind you all the time sure you know but how long what somebody said to me is a lot smarter than i am um the first thought that goes in your head isn't your fault it's the next thought that goes in your head that, that you can control so when that does come in I, I just try to get back to what i'm doing if it doesn't work well we have procedure for that just to kind of go through it i tell you what really uh, um, kind of bothers me sometimes is when I get that dry mouth, that mm. kind of mush mouth, you know, that, that physical sign of alcoholics and addicts. Yeah, and, and I can identify with that based on what I suffered with, which was meth mouth. I can remember Googling what meth mouth was because I remember chewing. I was in a restaurant in Washington, D.C. the first time one of my teeth fell out, and it was my back tooth. And I came to realize throughout recovery and as I had reconstructive surgery on my mouth that the rot in your mouth when you're using drugs and alcohol works from the back to the front. So that's why your loved ones don't actually see the physical indicator of you know, the the mouth, the grinding of the teeth, because as your teeth rot, they rot from the back to the front. 
So at the end of the rot, and as your teeth are falling out and as your mouth is getting drier, your mouth will actually have been rotting for quite some time. See, I didn't know this before I got into recovery, but uh, but now I, I know a lot of people that do have false teeth or have had their teeth fixed at one point or another. Did you, did you ever get, do addicts in, in withdraw or at the height of their addiction, do they ever get like night sweats or anything like that? Yeah, I, I think it goes to, um, you know, <laughs> that was one of the things early in recovery. I thought that I had contracted the HIV virus because one of the signs of HIV is the night sweating, and right. I actually had to get checked for that. And I suggest that anybody that's in ongoing recovery, has long-term or even short-term recovery, get checked for all these things because night sweat says, you know, when you were drinking, you know, those things were uncontrollable. You would wake up. And your bed sheets would be soaked. Yeah, it would it would be brutal, and you would be washing your sheets at least two or three times a week. So if you have, if your loved one is waking up with night sweats, we're not necessarily saying that they are an alcoholic or addict because it could be other medical things, like you said, with HIV, and it could be maybe too much meat. Yeah, <laughs> the meat sweats as gross as that is, but it, it is definitely one of the indicators, one one of the problems of whenever you're not getting enough alcohol or addiction. And, and you know, I think it goes to the overall the unhealthy lifestyle that we suffer with, right? Because the last thing we want to do is have to worry about taking care of ourselves on top of maintaining our addiction. So when you're not brushing your teeth before bed or you're not going to the gym to work out or you're not paying attention to that dry, flaky uh, skin that you keep itching, who cares about that? I want my next drug. I want my next drink by any means necessary to keep my addiction going is what I'm going to do. Think about going to work every day in the same clothes every day. Gym shorts and a t-shirt. And that's kind of what I was doing. I did not care about my hygiene. I did not care about my appearance. And I didn't trim any facial hair either. So that could be a really good indicator. And in post-recovery, that's something that kind of takes care of itself as soon as you detox. You're like, okay, my teeth feel a little bubbly here, a little bit grimy. And you start doing that. But it gets better the longer you're sober, the more you discover. Well, I'm concerned about it now because the the physical warning signs that we're talking about are evident. And I don't want the public to know that I once suffered as a, a drug addict, alcoholic, living on a day-to-day basis, living to use and l- using to live. The second indicator that you need to get involved with your loved one's recovery is the legal problems. Now, I was sued by a bail bondsman. No. Um, I had been arrested for possession of marijuana. Man, I <laughs> the cops snuck right up on me and uh, my ex-girlfriend at the time, smoking a little weed in the, uh, in the woods. And so I needed to be bailed out. So, of course, I was bailed out, had a court date, and did not show up for... That uh, that court date, the bail bondsman then sued me. Uh, I had added criminal history that I didn't want, but it, it just it all goes to the unmanageability of the legal process. When you get tangled up in these legal cases and you start getting case numbers online and it starts being published online, 
it's a major inconvenience, as you well know. Yeah, and that was the thing with me was the inconvenience. At the time, I got my DWI, or OWI in this case. The DWI is up to .08, if I'm correct, and the OWI is .15 and over. I had a .17 when I got stopped. I blew out one of my tires and went through a string of mailboxes. And when I got that, um, it was only one charge. Uh, it started out as four. We got it down to one, but they kept the OWI, and I lost my life license for a whole year Mm. at the time my job was a half hour away this was in a small town up a state road and i had to make that trip back and forth monday through friday so i had to find rides from other people who lived in the same town as i did and sometime my dad would take me up and back so we're not just talking about my inconvenience here Mm -hmm. we're talking about once again inconveniencing the people behind the people so going back to the the point one five that means that you were nearly two times the legal limit? I was drunk. Woo. That means I was drunk on Jack Daniels because yeah. that's what we were drinking. And, and what did that do to your loved ones? Like, how did that impact the, the I'm not going to say the devastation because you didn't feel any devastation. They may have, but they were certainly inconvenienced by your alcoholism? Well, it was so selfish, Ryan, because not only uh, would my dad give me a ride uh, whenever he could, and I'd ride with some other people sometimes, but with my dad, um, there were mornings where I was late to the car because I overslept. Mm. So it's not only even when I was, even when I was sober, I was still going to be selfish enough and egotistical enough not to get my ass out of bed and get myself to dad's car. I mean, and he would get frustrated because I'd be wasting his time. Of course, because he had somewhere to be. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. But... The only person you were thinking about was you. And the same thing for me, like this bail bondsman sued me and they didn't just come after me because in order to get bail in any case, you need three references. So when you're getting these references, of course, you're putting people on the hook who may not even know you're putting them on the hook. So, of course, my dad, my mom, a couple of friends I had in this case, I needed four references. And yeah, when the bail bondsman couldn't find me, he hit up everybody aggressively and started threatening them with legal action until I got my butt back into court and he got a check for the remaining part of the bond. Because a lot of people don't realize that when you're bailing out or bonding out of a case, you need 10% of the overall bail. So for instance, if your bail is $50,000, you need $5,000 up front, property or cash. And the people that are are you're getting a reference from, they need to they need to verify with the bondsman that they're going to be able to pay that if you don't show up for court. So yeah, you inconvenience the people. We hurt the people that we love, and that's one thing that the people behind the people don't understand sometimes is that the disease has a hold on us, man. It has a hold on us that's sometimes hard to kick. Now, I only got arrested one time, and I should have been arrested so many other times for drinking and driving and Talk whatever. Talk about grace and mercy, oh, huh? mercy, whatever, Woo. everything else I was doing, um, I was blessed. I got lucky. However you would have put it, I say blessed.
But you were you were arrested multiple times, am I multiple correct? Multiple times. How does that kind of perpetuate on itself? I mean, do judges remember you? Do courts remember you? Do you get used to the system? How does that go with multiple arrests? Yeah, so, you know, it's a great question because I remember being fingerprinted in a jail. And the way they fingerprint you is that, and, and watch me as I do this, they roll your finger Right, they're rolling your finger, and the even telling, roll. yeah, the finger roll, and even telling you right now, I am recalling how the 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 corrections officer took his finger, placed his hand over my hand, and rolled my finger as my fingerprint is being registered on paper, and I remember being almost institutionalized the second time I was just able to roll myself. He didn't need to roll. In fact, I got a compliment. He's like, oh, you know, you've done this before. So, you know, it's embarrassing, and you do become almost, I mean, institutionalized, strong word, because people that come out of prison after 10 years have been institutionalized, but you do get used to the process. And the people that are waiting in the waiting rooms for you to visit you in jail are being affected because they feel like they're doing the time with you. And that was so interesting you mentioned that, because on the day that I was released out of the drunk tank, uh, the, the people behind the people I had, I, I looked out and I could see in the lobby of the police station. Over here on one side were my friends, okay, Nick and Brad. And then over here on the other side were my parents, mom and dad. Who do you go with? Okay, <laughs> who do you go with? But, again, my selfishness couldn't identify that there are all these people here that love me and yeah. that are going to take care of me even though they are super pissed at me right now. And they all were, even my friends. I mean, they weren't get, they weren't drinking fits of Jack Daniels and driving in their cars. My mom and dad drank, and they weren't doing that either. I remember being in a, a juvenile-type situation. I caught some juvenile char charges, and my mom came to visit me behind this thick wall of glass, and she used this phone, and she couldn't really hear me because the inmates behind the glass were making so much noise that it was drowning out what I was trying to say <sighs> to her. But what I could, like, really get from her that day, and I could still remember it, man, some 20-plus years later, is that she told me that she was going to be able to leave the jail and ride alone in the peace and the freedom and the tranquility of, of just being a free person, right? And wow. I was going to have to return to the jail cell where I was doing some time and have to think about the consequences of my actions. We don't just hurt us. We hurt you. We hurt the loved ones behind the people struggling with to come to terms with our selfishness, our addiction, our alcoholism. And the beautiful thing about recovery is, yes, when you sober up, you get into recovery and you do the work, you are still going to have these legal things you face and you're going to have to deal with it. But the, the, the beautiful thing is, is you get the tools to be humble and understand that, yes, I made these mistakes and now I'm able to correct these mistakes at least. It gets easier over time because the financial consequences of, say, like a bail bondsman coming after you well, I paid the bail bondsman off years ago with my own cash money and took everybody off the hook that I was able to take off the hook. Part of the cool thing about being a responsible adult is that you're concerned about these things. And <laughs> once you get into recovery, you're, crazy. you're concerned about your credit score. You're concerned about right. the way that that you know having a, 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 an outstanding bail affects the people that you love. You become concerned and you want to make that amends. A third indicator that your loved one may need help or maybe an alcoholic or an addict is money. In lack thereof, I was spending my money, well, yeah, on alcohol. I was spending my money 
on DoorDash, on Uber Eats, on pizza delivery, anything that would not require me to leave my apartment and go pick it up. I wanted fattening food. I wanted food that was expensive. I would say in order with tip and with delivery fee. I mean, I was running $25 a meal. $25 a meal. So what bills were you paying? Um, not not a lot of them. Um not only did I not have the cash because of my purchasing with alcohol and the delivery, but I, I, I would forget. I, I simply would forget. And, there, and Ryan, there was too much going out. Remember, I mean, this is a time of auto debt. You know, you would say, okay, well, I, I can push this auto debt, this auto draw off maybe a couple of days, but there's another one you don't remember, and that could be like $111. Boom, you're overdrawn. Right. And that's and that's not because of the bill necessarily. It's because you've already spent all your money on sure. alcohol and food. Another thing is there's never enough of it, and there's always an emergency with money. I needed it immediately. Like, I would call my dad, and I would tell him our, our thing was Walmart. That's why there's an inside joke between me and my father now that I'm clean and sober. That's, that's good. You can laugh about it's it. Walmart, no, it's Walmart, really man. Cool. It's Walmart. It's beautiful. Every time I'm in a Walmart, which is few and far between these days, but I walk past, they have a money center. You know the money centers at Walmart? My dad would send the money there, and I would pick it up. Now, here's a couple of things about that. I didn't have an identification in active addiction. I, I kept losing my identification I would go back to the DMV every six months and get a new one. But in order to pick up money from anywhere, you need an identification. Not at Walmart. Walmart <laughs> allows you to use a code. Uh, say you have like, say the code from the sender is uh, 3364. As long as you could repeat that code to the person that is is processing the transaction, then they would give you the money without having to need an identification. So my dad would say, you know, what Walmart are you going to be at? And I would say the Walmart on, on South Street, and I would go to the Walmart on South Street, and my dad would send the money there. So, But it was always an emergency, Matt. I always needed it, like, on a Saturday at 8 a.m. when the store opened, on, on a Friday at 5 before it closed. A specific time, a specific location, a specific set of circumstances that would all lead back to the emergency and the need for cash, instant cash. Did you choose the Walmart because you thought you could put up a rouge there with your dad and be like, hey, I just need money for Walmart, you know? Yeah, I, I think it became less and less over time about that and more and more about the immediacy that Walmart provided. Because, you know, I could remember using Western Union back in the day, and Western Union was the quickest way to send cash. Now, I couldn't fathom using Western Union, and I don't know why people do. Anyway, I digress. So I'm talking about (laughs) (laughs) the need to get cash right away. Always an emergency and the unmanageability. I can keep $10 in my wallet now for three weeks and not even thinking about spending it. And and I'm glad you can do that. I do want to remind people in post-recovery, money takes help, and money can be hard. I do know a lot of sponsees, when they first come into recovery, that their sponsor manages their books for them. Now, that's a very personal thing, and and I understand that. I I don't know if that would be my way. But getting that education when you're sobriety, because now, now, now you care. Now you care about your money and you care about your responsibility, with that newfound responsibility, you can go and find out how to save and use your money. When you are confronting your loved one who's been in active addiction for quite some time, there's going to be a level of 
distrust. You're not going to trust that they're spending their money properly. And it's a healing process. It's a, it's a process that takes a lot of time and a lot of communication. They may, maybe they overcompensate to explain where they're spending their money. That's okay. The healing is both ways. Yeah. And it, it, one of the crazy things about my alcoholism and money and, and, and spending is I, I was not a cheap drinker mm. and you would think it, it goes to show how much this gets on top of us because you'd think it'd be like i want more and more and more so i'm gonna go get the cheap handle at cvs my cheap handle was a 25 dollar <laughs> bottle of kettle one you, you were what yeah. i call a uh, bougie drinker huh <laughs> Is that like bourgeoisie, that kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. I, I have not heard that before. That's amazing. You were yeah. a bougie drinker. Hey, I, I was. And it's not because I was pretentious. It was because I, I think I heard when I was a kid, don't ever drink inexpensive booze. Don't drink cheap booze. So, of course, that meant is when you're drinking a fifth and a half a day, you got to keep drinking expensive. That's right. how my alcoholic mind works. Right. So it is the, it is the money that it may come at the end of the cycle in that may be the last thing. That's why we put it last, because the money is often the indicator, the telltale sign that something is wrong. Now, don't get me wrong. You could be unmanageable, clean and sober. I've done it before. I've screwed up my money before. It doesn't mean you're back in active addiction. But I would say in post-recovery, that's something to watch because it's really going to take a concerted effort to trust them, to be able to know that they're spending their money wisely. And it's a learned habit. Money managing is difficult, not only when you're using, but when you're clean and sober. And I think it's okay when your alcoholic or addict is getting into recovery to say, okay, you, you might have had some spending problems in the past. Is, is there somebody you would like to talk to? To Maybe not necessarily, I'm not talking about an accountant or a tax person or anything, just somebody who might be in the know who could help you learn uh, how to keep more coming in than going out. Because right. that's really what it's all about. So, I, you know, suggest that to your alcoholic or addict and be like, hey, you know, it's it's a long-term thing, not a short-term thing, because when we first sober up, immediately we want everything to get better. Right. And that's not how it works. That's not how God has a plan. This is going to be something that could take a lot of time. And remember, there are employment services that you can go to, government assistance programs, even the treatment centers that they've come out of, they can help you and the counselors can help you kind of learn how to manage the money as a team because it is a team effort. I remember when I was waiting tables when I first got clean living with my mother and my grandmother, I would come home and place my tip money in a tip jar that my mom had for me that was locked up that I couldn't take out unless we both agreed where it was going. So sometimes it's steps like that that you can take, but there are other financial counseling services that you could participate in that can kind of retrain your brain. This is the Supporting Sobriety Podcast. I found hope in the midst of an overwhelming situation. Alcoholism can affect any family. Are you in an overwhelming situation because of someone else's drinking? Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 866-200-0033 or visit alanon.org slash hope. You're listening to the Supporting Sobriety Podcast. The three signs we covered here, physical, legal, and money, may only be the beginning. Addiction is a physical mental and spiritual disease that robs you of 
of time with the people that you love. And communication is so important. Communicating and trusting your gut. The, the thing is, as you do that, it's going to be frustrating because the alcoholic and addict like Ryan and I are so good at protecting the disease. We don't want you to know. We don't want you to find out because we don't want something to get in between the disease and us. I don't want you to prevent me from doing what I really want to do, which is use drugs and alcohol. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for listening, guys. We're on social, X, Twitter, Instagram, at Supporting Sobriety. Follow us there. And remember, if you need a meeting, aa.intergroup dot org slash meetings the virtual meetings virtual hyphen na dot org the suicide prevention line 1-800-273-8255 that's open 24 hours a day seven days a week or you could dial 988 and that's the suicide and crisis lifeline you can find the supporting sobriety podcast on social media x instagram at sobriety underscore pod. That's at sobriety underscore pod. Like us and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And we'll have the next episode coming up. What do you do when the signs are there and it's time for action? It might be time for an intervention. And we'll speak with a professional interventionist and get further and further into when it's time to do that. It's going to be a great conversation, guys. Please come back and please tell a friend. We're here to help. I'm Matt Bear. And I'm Ryan Hedrick. This is the Supporting Sobriety Podcast.